Welcome to Cast Conversations, a bi-weekly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. My name is Rosie O'Brien Boytek and I'm the current president for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Our special guest today is Fran Rabinowitz, the executive director of the Connecticut Association of School Superintendents. Fran has been leading CAPS for just over two months now and brings a wealth of talent and experience to the statewide leadership position. In addition to serving as a classroom teacher and district administrator, she served as the Associate Commissioner of Education for the State of Connecticut, the Superintendent of the Hamden Public Schools, and most recently as the Interim Superintendent of the Bridgeport Public Schools. We're very excited to have Fran joining us today for the CAST Conversations, so welcome Fran. Thank you so much. Okay. You became the executive director of CAPS on July 5th of this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Now that you are the executive director, what do you hope to accomplish? As the executive director of CAPS, I feel a tremendous responsibility to be there for superintendents, to be supportive of superintendents and their work within the school district, to provide them with the professional learning that they want and to provide advocacy for um, for schools and school districts at the state level and at the federal level. I think that in doing in providing the support for superintendents that it goes without saying you're providing support for all of the staff, students and parents. Absolutely and the principals. And the principals for sure. <laughs> for sure. So on August 2nd of this year, the What Will Our Children Lose Coalition sent a statement to Governor Malloy, state representatives, and state senators explaining that without a state budget, our children will lose. Would you explain to our listeners what that coalition is all about and the impact that not passing a state budget is having on our schools? Yes, that coalition is made up of CABE, the Boards of Education, CAS, the principals and school administrators, CASBO, the business managers, and CAPS, the superintendents. We um, felt incredibly strongly about the lack of a state budget. Lack of a state budget brings about uncertainty everywhere. There were seven different budgets out there at one point in time. Superintendents and principals and all staff were unable to plan going forward because they did not know what type of funding the state would provide. As of right now, we still do not have a state budget. We're operating right now under Governor Malloy's executive order. As a result of that, tremendous cuts have been made in many of our school districts, both our alliance districts and other districts, because, you know, based upon the executive order, there are major cuts um, coming. And if a budget is not decided upon, and even if a budget is decided upon, we don't know what that is. So there's great uncertainty. Right. And it seems like we're currently in a stalemate. So, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to do. So ultimately, what do you think is the best scenario that educators and school communities can hope for? What I'm hoping for is that there will be change in the education cost sharing plan for Connecticut. 
my hope is that that change will be brought in over the next few years and that it won't be done all at once. And I hope that there is a transparency to how education cost sharing is done. We need a formula that we can all recognize and own as Connecticut's formula for um, for funding public schools. Absolutely, and something that's equitable across the state. Absolutely. Great. Okay, so I'm going to change the direction of our yep, conversation yep, a little sure. bit and talk about, on your website, you have published a report from 2016, Next Ed, Next Steps. It's a vision and a plan for transforming Connecticut's education system. The report describes a set of complex challenges that Connecticut public education system faces. From your perspective and the perspective of superintendents, what are some of these complex challenges and how can the system be transformed so that we can meet the future needs of our students? I think that's a, a very complex question. <laughs> it is a very complex <laughs> it, question. It is. It's very, very complex. <laughs> and there's there's so much that we could talk about here, certainly about equity, certainly about rigor, and the successful graduate. I think what I would like to focus on is the portrait of a graduate. What do we believe are the dispositions? And notice I said dispositions first because I do believe that that is incredibly important. What are the dispositions, the skills and knowledge that our graduates need today to be um, successful in the um, 21st century? And Next Ed addresses how do we achieve those dispositions, skills, and knowledge? And what evidence do we have that students have mastered the skills and knowledge necessary to be successful or the dispositions as well? Mm -hmm. And I think that is what NextEd is about. It's about talking about not just having it be seat time and the fact that technology has transformed the education of our students and there is so much more ability now to differentiate and to really meet the needs of each individual and to be able to tap into what that individual is interested in. You know, I taught school. I taught third and fourth grade and many years later still feel guilty about the fact that some of my very high achieving students, and I remember one in particular, Paul, who was incredibly gifted in mathematics. And honestly, in a class then of 32, I could not provide for him. And I believe that NextEd talks to being able to provide for every student and to hold us all accountable for the mastery and evidence that that student has achieved the skills and knowledge necessary. I'll just say a couple of more words about that. One of the things that was pretty uh, life-changing for me, and it happened not that long ago, but I was a witness for the CJEF case, which was a coalition for justice and equity and funding, and I was on the witness stand for three days. And wow. one of the most difficult questions that the judge asked me was, can you really substantiate that every child that walked across that stage as a graduate was literate? 
and could, you know, operate in the 21st century? And it's probably one of the most difficult questions that anyone has ever asked me. And it was very public and the press was there and I had to say no, because I really could not substantiate that. They may have the hours in the seats, they may have the credits, but that didn't necessarily say that they had the skills and abilities that were needed in the 21st century. Right, that's a very difficult question. Oh, it's a very hard question, really hard question. So thinking about that in terms of the vision for the NextEd report, the vision says every child in Connecticut will have access to a high quality, developmentally appropriate, anytime, anywhere, educational options in order to provide a strong foundation for formal learning. And I need to tell the listeners that they can read the entire report on the CAPS website. Yes, yes. Um, so they can go out and, and really see what we're talking about since it's <laughs> there's not enough hours in the data to really do this justice. But um, from what you've just said and what we know about the report, if we put all of those pieces into place, how would that change the way that you might have responded to the judge in that case? I believe that if all of those pieces were in place, in the best of all worlds, I would have evidence for every single graduate that they had, in fact, fulfilled the requirements and did have the dispositions, knowledge, and, and skills to truly graduate and go on to post-secondary education, be it college, be it training, be it the military. And I would know that they have the foundational skills to be successful. Right. And so let's talk about some of those elements. I mean, the first one, starting at the beginning with early childhood, why is that so important? Well, Let me just speak from my most recent experience, which was in Bridgeport. And there were only two-thirds of the students who attended preschool. You would be hard-pressed to find that in a high-functioning suburban town. 95% to 100% of the students attend preschool. So that when those students entered our buildings, they were already behind where we would expect them to be given our new standards for kindergarten. And teachers were working really hard to try to bring them up to speed. And just to close that gap. To close the gap. And, you know, you would see, or I saw in my experience, wonderful growth. Teachers did their best. There was wonderful growth. But there was never enough growth to totally close the gap. And so I believe it's got to start very early. I don't believe that it's just attending preschool. I think we also have to look at the quality of the preschool program. Because even though I had two-thirds of the kids attending preschool, I had a third that didn't. But 70%, according to the teachers and the kindergarten survey, were not prepared Mm -hmm. for the standards um, entering K. Wow. Wow, which kind of gets at another one of of the elements, and that would be making it personal. There's a number of resources on the CAPS website that talk about personalized learning, and I'm assuming that could start even at the pre-K level, trying to personalize what the students are learning. Can you just explain what personalized learning is and how you see that impacting the students? Yes, I, I believe that with personalized learning, what you're looking at is 
Teachers work very hard, especially in those early grades. They, they know their students inside out, and they know where their students are, what their interests are. But I think that we used to talk a lot about meeting each child's individual needs. And I always question that because I was a teacher. And when you have 30 children in your classroom or 25 children in your classroom, all at different stages, you don't have necessarily the human resources that are going to deal with those children in individual cases. Um, How can we really realistically expect teachers to be able to do that? And I'm a very, I'm a realist, I'm a practitioner, and I, I have seen a major transition in classrooms through technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I really have, and I, you have to understand that I'm not a techie person. I don't believe mm-hmm. that technology will ever take the place of our teachers or anything like that. But it does provide the ability for teachers to really look at the individual and provide Johnny in second grade with a lot of nonfiction about the the geographic conditions in deserts because he's really interested in that. And 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 Susie with the you know families and different different makeups of families and you can meet them where they are and you can also meet them with what is important to them and relevant to them and I do think that that is a breakthrough. Right. You're, well, you're speaking to the choir because I love yeah. technology. Yeah. And, and it, you know, and, and uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the fact that students can read what they're interested in yes. at the correct level of difficulty. At it's not cor- like we're right. just going to give everybody the same book anymore. And so teaching is totally different. Another thing that, that can be used to a great advantage is assessment. So being able to measure where the kids are or whatever. And I was really struck in the report as I was reading it with the fact that it talks about students should be assessed when they have mastered content and skills rather than according to an arbitrary annual testing schedule, which I think also is getting at what you're talking Absolutely. about with multiple measures. Multiple measures. Um, you know, it always makes me absolutely crazy when I hear that the community colleges say that 70% of our kids need remediation coming in. I'm, I'm sorry that that is the case, but I also would ask that they look at many different factors rather than just the acupuncture. They look at one factor for it to determine that our children or our students coming in need remediation. I think it should be multifaceted, and I think technology provides us with that ability as well. And especially when you have teachers that can design great formative assessments and, and move children forward at their own rate. One thing I think we have to be very careful of, that doesn't mean that we have um, uh, infinite amount of time to move children forward. We right. cannot have children 
in first grade level for three years. Right, They've right. got to move, and we've got to provide the intervention that they need to move. Yeah, I always talk, I, if you remember the Beverly Hillbillies, yes, you, know, you don't want the yep. Jethro Bodines in your elementary school. Absolutely. You <laughs> just don't want that. We're dating ourselves, right? Yeah, we are, but I don't, you, you don't want that. No, you no. don't want that. And so we've got, we've got to make sure that we have quality teachers and quality schools. And so one of the other factors or strategies that your report talks about is strengthening the profession. And I was really struck by a quote um, based on Marzano's research that reads, Effective educators have dramatic impact on learning, as we all know. By some estimates, having a great teacher for two years in a row can push an average student to the 96th achievement percentile, which is totally amazing. So the report states that effective principals and su superintendents also play a role in that. So what is it that we need to be doing in order to strengthen the profession and achieve quality environment to support student-centered learning? And how do we create those teachers and school leaders that Marzano's talking about? Great question. So let's start in the beginning. We have to, first of all, attract the right people to the profession early on. And I, when I say the right people, it's the same thing I go with the vision of the graduate. They have to have the disposition and the skills and the knowledge to be in the profession. They have to really want to be a teacher. First off, let's start with the teacher. They then should be attending or enrolled in a pre-service program that truly prepares them exactly. for the classroom. I do believe that theory is important, but practice is equally important. I don't believe that the majority of our pre-service programs give our students enough on-the-ground practice over time to really prepare them for what it is to have that classroom. So that's number one. I think once they are the successful candidate and become teachers, I think having them surrounded by other wonderful teachers is really important. And I say that very clearly because the, the research shows that you're influenced by the people around you. Exactly. And that can be negative and positive. So we've got to ensure that we have the most positive educators mm -hmm. working with our new teachers and working in our schools. Marzano's research is verified by many other researchers mm -hmm. that say two years of a good teacher makes all the difference in the world. Three years is incredibly important. And three years of a poor teacher moves children way back. So nothing takes the place of an effective teacher. I do believe that when teachers are in the classrooms, we have to have wonderful principals, wonderfully effective principals, and we have to give them the support. Uh, superintendents must give the principals the support that they need in order to be instructional leaders and be in the classrooms. It should be about support and development. I believe that observation is important, but I also believe that having that conversation after the observation is more important than the observation itself. Absolutely. Because being able to sit down in a support and development culture and saying, you did this really, really well, this might need some help. And being there as colleagues mm -hmm. and talking about that makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely, and that feedback and then being there to say, how can I help you? And what do you need? You know, what, what you do know? you need? How can I help? And 
I've never found that leadership, effective leadership is not about compliance. It's really about influence. Mm -hmm. So being able to influence people to move forward. And uh, honestly, I've never seen a successful school without an effective principal. So Mm -hmm. in my book, and sometimes I feel really bad about that because I'm, as a superintendent, I put so much on my principals, and because I knew that they were the ones that could carry the ball, and I was only going to be as good a leader as I had a team out there working hard. Mm -hmm. And maybe it comes with being married to a principal for 36 years. Mm -hmm. I do think that principals have the most difficult job in education because you have constituencies everywhere and um, we all expect a great deal from you. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I, I can feel it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, but you know, it also comes with principals having a great team of yes, teachers underneath of them. teachers. And so if you can build that and strengthen the profession. Yeah, I, and I think you can't survive today as a, an effective principal without a, a team around you. And the principles that I have seen that have not succeeded were not able to create that team Mm -hmm. that would go to the nth to do whatever needed to be done. That whole idea of collegiality. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. makes all the difference in the world. So let's talk about relationships. What is the ideal relationship or partnership between superintendents and building leaders? And what does that relationship look like? You told us what you thought you did wrong, but what what would that look like? Well, I think that the ideal relationship is, you know, again, a collegial one. I believe that a superintendent has a responsibility to be visible and to be in the schools and to really experience what a, a principal is dealing with and to be supportive of that principal. Just as we ask a principal to be supportive of the teacher, I believe we have a responsibility as superintendents to be supportive of our principals. And if they're not doing well, to find out why they're not doing well and to give them what it is they need to do the job better. And I think that only happens when you have a supportive climate in your district where principals are not afraid Mm -hmm. to say what isn't going well and they work on solutions together. Absolutely. So I, I know that from a CAPS perspective, we are very excited to be working with CAPS. And I guess my question would be, what is it that we can do principals and superintendents in order to move schools forward in the state, especially when you're looking at the fiscal difficulties that we're having right now. How can we work together to better advocate during these difficult times? Well, I think, you know, I work really closely with Carissa Niehoff as the executive director. I think we have to be in communication often, and I think we have to bring and brainstorm around the table. I think we have to always be sure. One of the things that I am concerned about a whole lot is in this position. I am not a direct practitioner anymore. I am not a superintendent. And so 
I want to be sure that I get the input from practicing superintendents because I never want to be removed from what the actual practice is. And I think Carissa feels the same way. And if we are getting the input on what needs to be better, I think we can work together to make that happen. But I'll tell you the truth, it's really all about relationships. It's all about being able to form those relationships, being able to say hard things to each other about what we think the issues are, and moving forward together. And being open to listen to the other side. The openness to listen to the other side is incredibly important. Absolutely. So are there other topics or issues that are foremost in your mind for the 2017-18 school year that we didn't talk about that you might want to mention? Well, I do think there's one other piece, and I alluded to it in the piece on dispositions, but Mm -hmm. I do think that social and emotional learning and development for all stakeholders is incredibly important. And we have to establish in classrooms, in schools, and in districts a culture that cultivates social and emotional learning. And we have to understand and make sure that all the stakeholders understand how important that is. If a child feels safe, if a child feels comfortable in their surroundings, if a child feels that they can make a mistake, academic learning will increase. And I, I believe that about all the stakeholders. It's, it's true of the children, but it's also true of teachers and paras and custodians. There has to be a culture of really honoring um, people's feelings, and and that becomes the foundation for the academics. So I will continue to work on that. When we put forward the profile of a graduate, you can be sure that that's going to be part of it. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because that positive culture that, and again, it gets back to relationships, just it like does. what you said. It is. It's all about relationships. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Fran. And as always, you've given me and I'm sure there are listeners a lot to think about. And I just can't thank you enough for stopping by and thank talking you. with me And today. thank you for taking on this role. <laughs> and thank you for asking me. I think the podcasts are a great idea. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAS Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.